Well, every human body has lots of different kinds of cells. In every human body, there are nerve cells, uh, there are blood cells, there are muscle cells, etc. All sorts of different kinds. And every cell in our body has a distinct function. A body operates smoothly, not because the cells come together for a meeting and kind of vote on what to do, but because each one does what it was designed to do. The brain is designed then to bring all these functions together so that the body operates effectively as each cell works according to its design. The body wouldn't operate properly if its cells decided to go their own way. Do you know what a rebellion in the cells of your stomach is called? It's called indigestion. But it can get worse than that. Some of us know this all too well. Cancerous tumors are caused when cells start a mutiny, when they start to destroy healthy cells. The reason medical scientists are having a hard time curing cancer is that because they can't figure out, figure out what makes cells do that. Anytime the cells in our body don't operate properly and in a unified way, it means that the body is sick, that something is wrong with it. Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. In some ways, that analogy can be brought to the church and to the functioning of its body. Christ is the head of the church, and he is designed for the various parts to function, all doing their part in unity. And that's what Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is all about. If you've uh, closed your Bible from when, uh, when Todd read that before, I encourage you to open it up again. And I, and I encourage you generally to bring your Bibles to church. If you don't have a Bible at home, there are some provided in, the, in some of the chairs in front of you. And it would help you as we go through the sermon if you would uh, follow along as uh, we look at the passage. Today we make a transition into our, our study of Ephesians, and we're kind of right at the halfway point in our study. And, and, and Paul makes the transition with, with that one word at the very beginning of verse 1, therefore. In that one word, he's talking about everything he's already written in chapters 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 3. Up to now, this has been about doctrine. As we've studied this together, chapter 1 to 3 has been about knowing who God is and knowing about what God has done. But now, as Paul goes into the second half of the letter, he moves into, into practice. We move from knowing God to doing as a result of knowing God. What do we do? How do we now live now that we know everything that God has done for us? What are we commanded to do? now that we've been reminded of who God is and, and of what he has done in salvation. So if the therefore there encompasses all of chapter 1 to 3, there's another word that encompasses our practice. And that is the word in verse 1, walk. You see that there? Therefore I, as a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's again verses chapters 1 to 3 manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so a walk, the walk that Paul is describing here, talks about how we live. It's talking about our conduct as Christians. It's talking about our behavior. It's talking about our, our lifestyle. It's the practical side of our Christian lives. 
At the end of chapter 3, Paul just prayed for us to know God and to know the love of Christ, to know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ. But that knowledge needs to produce action. It can't just stay in our head. It needs to be acted out. It needs to show up in our lives, in our behavior, in our conduct. And so Paul talks about that in terms of our walk. And we'll come back to that term again next week. And look at verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened and, and all those things. You don't walk that way anymore. He says in verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in that way. And he tells us then to put on the new self. So don't walk the way you were walking before you were a believer. You have a different lifestyle. You've been saved to have a different kind of walk. And then again in chapter 5, he, he, he talks about the same term again in verse 2. Walk in love, he says, just as Christ also loved you. And down in verse, in verse 8, he says it again. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the world. And because of that, walk as children of the light. And so God, through these next three chapters is about to tell us how we ought to live. And as those who are part of the family of, of God, as, as those who are Christians, what are, what are, how are we to act and how are we to behave in our Christian life? How does a Christian behave? What is a Christian lifestyle like? How do Christians live out the Christian life? Well, before I take, say a little bit more about that, just a reminder here that we can't ever disconnect doctrine and practice. Don't say, good, I'm glad we're done with chapters 1 to 3. Now we can get on with real life. Don't think that way. If we just talk about the practical side of things, about our behavior, disconnected from the gospel, then we just become moralistic. And if you do that long enough, eventually you'll begin to think that the way to please God, the way to gain acceptance with God, comes through our good behavior. But if you do that, you've missed the point, and you've missed the gospel. The only way we can truly change our behavior with pure motivations is through our knowledge and our faith in what God has already done for us in Christ. Before that, all our good works are like filthy rags. We, we never do them with the right motivations. Because of our sin, we always do them with, with selfish motivations. And, but now we can do things with a different motivation because of what God has done for us through Christ. And so as we talk about our lifestyle there in chapters 4 to 6, it always needs to be connected to what God has done in chapters 1 to 3. So as I go through these next three chapters, I'm always going to connect it to what Paul has already, already said. And if I don't, make sure you check me on that. The first thing that Paul talks about in our worthy walk is the concept now of unity. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And you see that there in verse 3. He says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And then again at the end of the section that Todd read there, it says in verse 13, until we all attain, there it is again, to the unity of the faith. And so on both sides you have it talking there about unity. Even verse 16 doesn't use the word unity, but it talks about being fitted and held together. Paul is exhorting us toward togetherness, towards unity, toward being one body. And so he talks about attaining to the unity of the faith. 
when we rightly understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it will be marked, we will be marked by an obvious unity amongst those that God has brought together here in the church, that creation of the church that one of the children talked about there. And the question Paul will answer for us here in verses 1 to 16 is how do we get there? What is unity and and how does it work itself out, out in the life of a believer, in the life of God's family, in the life of the church? This idea of unity between the people of God is a, is a constant goal in the New Testament. It comes up over and over again. John 17, the, almost the last, well, basically, the, well, not, not quite, but one of the last prayers of Jesus before his crucifixion, when he prays to his Father in the garden there, it, that's really the other great passage, along with Ephesians 4, on unity. There Jesus says, I pray that they might be one. As I go back to you, Father, I pray that you would make them one, that you would help them to grow in unity. In Acts 1.14, the early church is described this way. It says they were, with all, they were all with one mind, continuing to devote themselves to prayer. Romans 12.16, Paul writes, be of the same mind toward one another. Romans 15.5, again, live in such harmony with one another that together with one voice you may glorify God. Philippians 127, Paul really uh, piles it on there. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, moving in one direction for the faith of the gospel. See the connections there? There's something about the gospel that should bring about oneness, that should bring about togetherness in those that have been touched by the good news of Jesus Christ. And so let's get back to Ephesians 4 to figure out how we get there. How does this unity work itself out in the way of the church? Well, the first thing that we can say is that unity occurs in the context of relationship. Unity occurs in the context of relationships. Now you look at that point and you say, duh, you know, that's obvious. You can't have unity with yourself. Although I guess it would be easier that way, you know, you don't have anybody to, to fight with. Um, But it needs to be said here, right off the top, that the way we who have been called live out our calling is in relationships with other people who have also been called. That is, with other believers. I said it last time, Christianity is not me and Jesus. When you were saved, God didn't place you on an island, but he placed you in a church. Yes, you get saved individually, but you live out your salvation in a community. That's partly why, why God ordained even baptism. Part of the purpose behind baptism is that uh, an individual makes public their private confession. Two weeks ago, uh, Nikki and, and Dodie and Ron were, were telling us, in effect, that God has saved me into this body. I'm now the same of you as you. I'm, I'm part of your family. That's what they were telling us. Baptism is even included in that list of, of ones there in verse, in verse 5. We get baptized into the church. It's a public profession of our faith, and we now want to have our faith be lived out in the church. That's what baptism is saying, part of what it's saying. And so unity assumes relationships. Look at verse 2. It says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. 
All those terms there in verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance with one another in love, are attitudes that by definition have to happen in the context of relationships with other people. There's no other way that they can, that they can show up, that they can manifest themselves. And another common thing about these attitudes is that they all have a foundation and a forerunner in the person of Jesus Christ. We can have those kind of attitudes because, of, because Christ already had that attitude. He, Jesus was humble, Philippians says, even to the point of death on the cross. Matthew 11 says that Jesus was gentle and humble in heart. Jesus is also extremely, we know this, patient and tolerant with us. And so if you want to have a lifestyle that's worthy of our calling, we'll try to be like Christ toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Humility. Humility treats others with a self-understanding that we deserve nothing ourselves. That's a kind of a definition of humility. Humility treats others with a self-understanding that we deserve nothing ourselves. The opposite of humility is pride. And pride gets, in, in the context of relationships with others, it gets easily wounded at being treated unfairly, doesn't it? If you start to think you're treated unfairly, ask yourself if you have been treated fairly by God had Christ not died on the cross. I think the answer for all of us would be no. God treats us way better than we deserve. Humility is where you're conscious of your, conscious of your own unworthiness, which then helps you see someone else as being worthy through Christ. John Stott says, pride works behind all discord. The secret of concord, the secret of unity, is humility. Gentleness. Gentleness has been described as strength under control. When it looks like you have a right to defend yourself in a relationship with someone else, how do you react? Do you come out fighting and seek revenge? Do you assist on your own rights? Or do you exhibit, again, following the model of Christ, a gentle spirit? Remember Jesus when, just before his crucifixion? He's gentle. Strength under control. He, was, he knew that God would, would handle it in his way and in his time. And we need to be like that as well in our relationships with other people. And that leads to the next two qualities, patience and tolerance. You know, these are tough ones for us, aren't they? It's hard to be patient with people sometimes. It's hard to tolerate people's actions sometimes, even within the church. But when our patience gets tested in our relationships with other Christians, we need to be reminded again how patient God was with us. We were dead in sins, and God would have had every right to punish us forever. But he didn't. Patience and tolerance can be defined as long-suffering towards aggravating people. I'm sure you get aggravated by Christians at times, and I'm sure you're aggravating to other Christians at times as well. But we're to be long-suffering toward them in love, just as Christ was, just as Christ is toward you. Let me just interject here to say that, if, that these attitudes are ultimately only possible for believers. If you are here today and have not repented of your sins, the Bible said that, says that, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is patient, waiting for those that are his to, to come to repentance. He's patient towards you. You still have an opportunity to repent and to put your faith, to put your total reliance in Jesus Christ and and what he did on the cross. 
what he did in his life, what he did in his death, what he did in his resurrection, in your place. So I encourage you to do that today if you haven't already, while there's still time, while his patience is still great towards us. But for you Christians, I don't, I don't know what sort of grievances you might have toward one another. That's the good thing about still kind of being new here. So I can say these without knowing what's going, what, if anything's happening. But brother and sister Christians, don't let those things linger. Don't let them fester. Deal with them. If you treated someone wrongly, make it right. If you've been, if you've been treated wrongly, show patience and, and tolerance, humility, gentleness. You might think that's impossible. It's too much has gone on. I, I just can't do it. There's too much history there. I can't bring myself to treat that person that way. But listen, you just need to remember here your relationship with God. God had infinite grievances toward you. You broke his law over and over and again. But in his great love, he sent Jesus Christ to save you from eternal punishment, from the eternal punishment that you rightly deserved. And so treat other people with that in mind. Be humble and gentle. Be patient and tolerant. And do all of this in a spirit of love. Love covers a multitude of sins. And why do you need to do this? Look at verse 3. It says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's the next point. While unity has been granted, it requires effort in order to preserve it. Paul is imploring these people. He's he's begging this church to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Unity is important. It's worth the effort. It's something that's worth preserving. Unity is something we need to pursue at all costs. It's something God has given us, and we need to be diligent to to keep it there. It's that important to God. It's, It's important to God because of what we have been saved into. Look at that list. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So this Christian unity has already been achieved by us or by God for us. This is what happened when salvation came. Christians were all saved into a unified body. All of us were rescued. All of us were made alive in the same way. And now, all Christians have the same status. We all have this in common. We, we have unity because of our commonality. We were saved into one body. We're not, you know, yes, last couple of days were the NHL draft, and I kind of compared this. We're not, in the Christian life, we're not drafted into different teams. We're made one. We're on one team. Paul already emphasized that fact in chapter 2. God made us alive together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 14, He is our peace who made both groups, talking about the Jew and Gentile here, made the both groups into one. 2.16, he says that he might reconcile them both into one body. Verse 21 of chapter 2, the whole building being fitted together. Verse 22, it talks about being built together. God has already made us into one. Everything that is important to our salvation, we all share these things in common. The one thing that comes through in this list is that it involves, you might have noticed this, the triune person of God. 
In this list, you have one Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, one Lord, talking about the Son, and one God and Father. And so there's a, a, a tri-unity that exists in the person of God. And because it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit that saved us, we cannot then be divided. That doesn't make sense. Just like you can't divide God into different parts, you ought not to be able to divide his family into different camps. So the good news is, is that we don't need to create this unity. That part has already been done. But it says we need to make every effort to preserve it, to maintain that unity. Well, what does this mean for us in the church? It means that if we are involved in a dispute with another believer, or even if we know disunity exists somewhere in the body, we need to plead with these people to work it out. We can't be passive or, or disinterested or just, you know, let's just wait and see what happens. This says be diligent to preserve the unity. The Bible gives us some guidelines on how to go about that in, you know, in places like Matthew 18 and, and other scriptures as well. But we need to spare no effort in preserving the unity that we as Christians have been saved into. It does disservice to what God has done if we are not unified, if we have divisions. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the faith. Thirdly, unity emerges through God-given diverse gifts. We could ask at this point, how does God plan to make this unity happen? What is his design? What's his What's his strategy? What's his MO? What does his blueprint look like? He's told us that we're unified just by virtue of our, our common rescue into a common faith. But how does he plan to make that happen? Well, we find out here in verse 7 and following. He says, But to each one, each one in his body, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift the end of verse 8, and he gave gifts unto men. And then in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and so on. The answer to how does, how does unity through those that make up the church, how does God give unity to those that make up the church? The answer is by dispersing gifts. Note, to each one of us. Now, this gets interesting. The first question I asked here is, why that contrast in verse 7? talks about, you know, we're one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. But, in verse 7, to each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. I looked at that at first glance. It didn't make sense. What is he contrasting? But when you look at it closer, you can see that Paul is basically contrasting the word all in verse 6 and then the words each one in verse 7. There's one God who's over all and through all and in all, but to each one of us, grace was given. So he's saying that there is unity in our sameness, in our commonality, but God also designed that unity is achieved through our differentness, through our diversity. So unity does not mean that we are all the same. That sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? When God places us into the church, he doesn't give us all the same uniform. We're not a, you know, a, a private school or, or a football team or 
workers at McDonald's. You know? Unity does not mean uniformity. We are the same and we are different. And all of that confines, or combines to form a unified body. It just tells us something about the creativity and the, and the beauty of our God, doesn't it? He can take people who are totally and absolutely different from each other and save them into one unified team to accomplish his purposes. We are one body, born again from one spirit. We have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, but to each one, different gifts were given. And so commonality plus diversity equals church unity. That's the math of the beginning of Ephesians 4. Let me just quickly say something about verses 8 to 10. Because Paul explains that there when Christ distributed these gifts. In verse 8, Paul quotes a verse in Psalm 68 where he compares Jesus to, to a king coming back from battle. And kings, when they came back from, from battle, used to uh, parade before all their people all the spoils of the enemy. And they'd, they'd have a bunch of captives that were following behind as well, the people that they captured, the prisoners. When the king did that, he would often distribute the spoils to the people. As he was going down the parade, he'd throw out some of the spoils to, to, to the people, to his subjects. And so Paul compares that to Christ having, having completed the battle at the cross, the battle against Satan, and having won that battle. He compares that to Christ dispersing gifts to his people. As he returned, as he ascended to heaven from earth, he distributed gifts to his people, to all those that make up the church. He left them with gifts. Christ is the giver of these gifts. Well, there are different lists of gifts in the New, in the New Testament, at least four different lists of gifts that he's given. And I don't think any of those lists forms an exhaustive list. There's, there's all kinds of gifts that, that, that probably aren't mentioned, and, and some of the gifts that are mentioned we don't uh, have today or need today as well. But in Ephesians here, Paul lists just uh, four or five gifts given especially for leaders. In verse 11, he says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, at least the first two of these gifts, I believe, were needed at the beginning of the church, but were just for those early years as the church got started. They were foundational gifts. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. An apostle was defined as someone who had, who had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. And I believe that when the original apostles died, you know, obviously no one else qualified then in, in, in the technical sense of the word. Even when the apostle James died, I think it's in Acts 12, we don't read of, of, of them replacing him with another apostle. And it's a, but in a techni technical sense, there are no more. Yet there are those who still do the work, the same work that the apostles did of explaining God's word. It's the same with prophets. There are no more prophets who receive direct revelation from God and then tell it forth to the people. But there are those who do the work of handling God's word. Only that word now comes not in the form of direct revelations, God speaking to them, but in the form of God's word that we have now. Evangelism is the duty of all believers. We're all supposed to be about the duty of evangelizing. But God has specially gifted some 
with the ability of making the gospel plain to unbelievers. And then pastors and teachers are people that are gifted to protect and guide the sheep and to teach God's word. Now when you take them all together, I could spend a lot more time on each one of those, but when you take them all together, all those gifts have something to do with teaching. And so we could summarize that list by saying that in order to preserve unity, God has given every church leaders to do the work of teaching. This is why we believe so strongly in the, in the, here in the preaching and the teaching of, of the word in this church. We can and, and we should be involved in lots of other things, but everything must be centered around and flow from the word of God. And God has designed that his word be disseminated and explained, exposed and, and taught by evangelists and preachers and teachers. Sinclair Ferguson says that in the history of the church, Whenever there has been a spiritual quickening in the church, or a revival, it's another word, way of saying that, whenever there has been a spiritual quickening in the church, Christians have looked for an intense diet of the preaching of the word. That's what we're attempting to do here at Wetaskiwin Mission Church. If you're new here, this is what you can expect. Biblical preaching and missions have been the emphasis of this church for many years, and that will not change. What we would like to see a little bit more is gifted leaders and trainers and teachers rising up from within the church to teach. I believe this is not just talking about paid preachers. It's talking about men teaching younger men. It's talking about women teaching younger women. It'd be great to see those sorts of relationships happening throughout our church. People who Come, have been in faith for a long time, teaching those who are young in the faith. You just need to read Titus 2 or 2 Timothy 2 to see how this is how God means to build up the church. This is how God has designed that his church be built up to maturity. So it's incumbent upon us as leaders to equip saints to do the work of ministry, which is the next step of the progression there in verse 12. See that for the equipping He's given some as prophets, uh, some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the equipping of saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It says Christ gave various kinds of teachers for, to equip the saints for work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And that order is important. It just means that God didn't design that the leaders and the teachers do all the work of the ministry. That's not what he's saying here. God has given them to equip the saints. For what? For the work of service. The word that we translated equipping means to make complete, to make perfect, to prepare. Leaders equip believers so that they can then serve. And so service is the goal, and it's the goal for everyone, not just leaders. God hasn't designed two or three people to do all the work of the ministry. He's designed the entire body to be part of that work. Leader's task is to teach and to equip and to train. The task of the saints, or of the lay people if you want to put it that way, is to do the works of service. To do works of service. And when that begins to happen, the church begins to work according to the way God has designed it. The cells begin to work according to their design. Works of service are happening throughout the church should be happening without, throughout the church, whether that be visiting shut-ins, whether that be encouraging new Christians, whether that be sharing the gospel with non-Christian friends and, and neighbors, whether that be praying for other people, 
whether that be taking food or clothes to, to people that need it, whether that be driving people to church. All those things are works of service that the teachers and leaders are equipping the saints to do. And the ultimate purpose is at the end of verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. You know, think about that. Isn't that a beautiful picture of a unified body? All working together, leaders teaching in various ways, saints receiving the word and then serving in different functions, yet all doing it for the same outcome, namely to the building up of the body of Christ. And that brings us to the last point. What is the end result of unity? Unity, it says, results in a mature Loving church. Verse 13. When everything is working the way God has designed it, here is the goal. We keep building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of a knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Those words in in, in my translation, to a mature man, really mean a mature church. Sounds like an individual maturity there, but Paul is still thinking of the church as one body. And so all the parts of the body function the way they're designed to. The result of that is a mature man, a mature church. As a church, verse 14, it says, we will no longer be children, if that's what our outcome is. While the Bible does tell us to, to, to be like children in terms of our humility, in terms of our innocence, in terms of our childlike faith, There is ways we're not to be like children. We're not to be like children in terms of their lack of knowledge or in terms of their instability. We all know that children can be extremely gullible and get easily convinced of something. They they lack discernment. Parents know that. We know that. If If you give them a choice of what to eat, they'll likely be swayed by their taste buds, not by nutritional value. They want fulfillment now. They can't quite see the big picture of what this might mean later on. If adults are like that in a church, it can be tragic. Children will be like that. That's just the way children are. Parents are given to guide them and to help them be more discerning later on. But if adults are like that in a church, it can be tragic. A childlike church will follow every wind of doctrine will follow every so-called Christian fad that blows down the pike. It'll just move from one thing to the next big thing that comes along. While the remedy for gullibility and instability is speaking the truth in love. In order to build up a church to maturity, there must be truth, and not just truth, it says, but truth taught in love. It all comes back to teaching again. When the truth is taught in love, the result is a church that grows up, it says, into Christ. It becomes more and more Christ-like. That's the goal for all of us. The goal of unity is a mature, grown-up church that reflects the one who created that unity in the first place. It all comes full circle. And the summary there is in verse 16. Here you see it again. Commonality plus diversity equals a mature unity. Christ, from whom the whole body, our commonality, being fitted and held together by that which every joint, every joint, diversity, supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, there's that diversity again, causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. So this is the way that God designed the church. This is the way he created it. And it is a perfect design. 
When you think about it, it just makes so much sense, doesn't it? So maybe you've never thought about how you fit into the body of Christ. Maybe you've been content to sit on the sidelines. Well, I hope today that the Spirit of God has used His Word to bring some discontent to you today. If you profess to be a Christian and consider yourself a part of this church, how are you doing at being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit at Wetaskiwin Mission Church through your relationships, through your service? Listen, God has a place for you here. He has an area of service for you, whether that be as a teacher or whether that be as a learner who's being equipped to do works of service. There are so many places to serve. And if you have any questions about what you can do or how you can be involved, I invite you to please come and talk to me. And as you get involved, you'll begin to start to experience the beautiful unity that God has designed between brothers and sisters in Christ. As a church, if if unity should mark our Christian lives and our church, why would we want to exist any other way? Why would we ever want to have pride or, or harshness in our midst or to be impatient or short with people? All that stuff leads to an ineffective church, one that is marked by division and and disunity. Those are the the marks of a a childlike, selfish, my way or the highway type of church. Who wants to be like that? Let's instead keep striving to be the church that is known for our humility and our gentleness, as I think we are already, with patience, showing tolerance for each other in love. Let's keep striving to be known for being a unified body, a healthy body, a body where leaders are using their God-given gifts to teach and to equip the saints, a church where the saints are doing works of service in all sorts of self-sacrificing ways, a church that is growing up and to look more and more like our Savior so that in the end our Savior might be able to, as chapter 5 says, to present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for for placing believers into the church. Lord, we're grateful for your wonderful creativity in the church. Lord, we sometimes look at each other and think, what could I possibly have in common with that person? Yet in your infinite wisdom, you have brought us all together through a common faith. And not only that, you have, you have not even, you've not made us the same. You allow us to serve together by granting each of us different gifts. And through these gifts, we serve together so that we can be a unified church. Lord, I pray that you would help us to work hard to preserve what you have created. Help us to work through differences so that we can preserve the unity that Christ died to purchase. Help us to be the church the way you designed it. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.